The epic poems of the legendary poet Homer are considered to be the first works of Western literature. By the 6th century BC, the Iliad and Odyssey were considered classics, and for the past 2,700 years, their reputation for excellence has never dimmed. While that's an amazing run of critical acceptance for any artist's work to enjoy, the works of Homer have suffered a bit from neglect in more recent centuries. While in ancient Rome and Greece, a cultured person would have been familiar with both the Iliad and Odyssey. In modern times, the great works must compete with all that has come since. One of my favorite books is Michael Hart's The 100, a ranking of the most influential persons in history. As you would expect, the great Homer, whom Hart assumed to be a real person and the genuine author of the poems, did make the list, but only barely. One of Hart's demerits for the poet was the fact that he is seldom read today. Well, Michael Hart wrote that 20 years ago before our guest today stepped forward to see if she could change that. And for the last 14 years, she's been succeeding. Catherine Holvine, Professor Emeritus of English at California State University, Sacramento, taught her students about Homer for years. And upon retiring, she set out to do something about that little problem that Mr. Hart mentioned. Professor Holvine wanted to facilitate, in our distracted computer age, a reconnection across the centuries. So she founded the Readers of Homer, and thanks to her efforts, Homer is again being read, openly, in public, by hundreds of participants in some of the world's great cities. Homer's being expressed as he was in ancient times, and given the enormous size of the works in question, that takes a little time. So it is that on Friday, June 22nd, there will be a 12-hour, all-night event taking place at Fairytale Town in Sacramento's William Land Park, where the public will be invited to read aloud from the Odyssey. We're delighted to be able to bring Catherine Holvine to you to talk about the poems and the upcoming event. Welcome to Radio Parallax, Dr. Catherine Holvine. Thank you. I can't resist starting out uh, by asking about the poet himself. I, I gather that the man himself does remain rather mysterious to us. Totally mysterious. Um, we don't know if he existed. Uh, there's a lot of controversy around who he was, where he was born, if he was one person or many. Well, I, I know scholars do debate that, but I had to laugh when I was reading that a section in Heart about Homer. He came down on the side of it being one author, he said, because the works are too good to have been made by a committee. Well, I think that's pretty much a general <laughs> scholarly consensus right now. But there's this lovely joke that I always, it's, it's an old one, but that if Homer didn't write the Iliad and the Odyssey, someone else by the same name did. <laughs> that's a pretty good summation of the, of the problem. Well, I, I know you taught English at, at CSUS for almost four decades, Catherine. I'm guessing it was not all poetry, um, let alone all Homer. It was not all Homer, although I enjoyed my Homer course probably more than anything. Um, I taught creative writing, modern poetry, contemporary poetry and translation, and a lot of creative writing. I also taught things like uh, comparative religion and um, the art experience, whatever that was, and basic composition, which we all have to teach, more so now than ever, by the way. And I guess that uh, that at one point earlier in your career, you were you were asked to 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 teach Homer, and you didn't didn't know much about him. 
Well, that was when I was really young, and I was teaching at Ohio State University, and um, pregnant, <laughs> and um, they just gave me a um, humanities course in which Homer was part of the curriculum, and I had never read it. I had certainly heard about Homer, but I had never read it, certainly never studied it, and of course had a few attitudes of, about it without having read it, and you know, there's no better way to learn something than to teach it. And actually, pretty quickly, within about two semesters of teaching it, I knew that I had found a kind of, a kind of source for myself and something that I enjoyed teaching tremendously. So I stayed with it. I stayed with it forever. And when I came to California State University here, um, I was very lucky because I got to tell you, this is an unconventional thing for an English teacher to be uh, allowed to teach uh, something that was written and composed in Greek, sung in Greek, written down in Greek, and thought of as Greek. So actually, I should have been in the classics department, but I'm not oh, really? really a classicist. Mm -hmm. I am an, a poet or an English teacher, and uh, so I had a marvelous, um, I had a marvelous chair of the department who, uh, that was the, an era of certain academic freedom. Let me add um, that uh, who allowed me to teach what I called the Homeric imagination. And once I started, that was, it was solid. Uh, well, you, you taught the Homeric imagination, uh, from what I can gather, that, um, that Homer gets a lot of extra credit for his imagination, and for his vivid female characters, and, uh, and, and for something that I think even modern writers and filmmakers would appreciate. He starts the Odyssey in the middle, then tells the tale in flashbacks. Well, Homer is very famous for, for saying, just, be, just begin somewhere. I always <laughs> say that to my creative writing students. They say they don't know how to begin a story or begin a novel or even a poem. And I say, just do what Homer says. He says, start. And isn't that what we do if someone tells us, what was your trip like to Afghanistan? Yeah. You say, where will I begin? I'll just have to start. Right. And then from that follows the rest. It's interesting to me that uh, that that the standard that he was that he set back in ancient times gave some gave everybody else something to work from, sort of like Charlie Chaplin showed people how to make comedy movies. Homer basically taught people how you could how you could put together these great works. Oh well, I think Aeschylus, the the famous uh, the famous dramatist, uh, I think he said that everyone everyone's work was just crumbs from Homer's table, <laughs> which in a way is kind of true because it has a a tremendous enduring uh, quality and a lot of capacity of being uh, people taking fragments of it and developing them. And uh, that gives it for a lot of kind of license and freedom. When you were teaching, were you frustrated that, that these works were not being read aloud in your class or elsewhere that, that, that made you want to start the Readers of Homer? That's a good question. Uh, uh, not fr I wasn't frustrated at all. I made my students read it aloud. Uh, I found that this was one of the things that uh, they most enjoyed. Of course, you could, you'd take up the whole course if you allowed too much of that. We had to talk about it as well. But, I mean, in every, every session, I would say someone would read uh, 25 lines or so, and, they, and they, they loved it. I believe that was the genesis, as a matter of fact. Well, let's, let's talk about these events, which, have, which you've now had rolling for a decade and a half here. Um, how are they done, and, and what happens? Oh, what a big question. How are they done? They're public events and people they turn out. They are public you, events. Yes. They are a lot of fun. They've turned into a lot of fun. They're not 
intended to be, nor are they highly scholarly. They're not or highly academic. I mean, I I do care a lot as to whether they're respectable uh, in a scholarly way, and they are. Uh, but they are have turned into a communal event that is um, quite delightful. It seems to me uh, where people of all ages, types, kinds, education, everything, uh, participate in reading just a bit of, uh, uh, of whichever poem I'm doing. I might be doing the Iliad in one place, the Odyssey in another, or I, in, as in Montevideo in Uruguay, I did both over, a, oh, it was a whole week of festivities about Homer, which was lovely. Um, so what I have learned is that <laughs> this is a very flexible event. It can be shorter, it can be longer, it can be uh, with music, it can even be without music, it can be with dancing or not, it can be with food or not, it can be indoors or outdoors, it can be day or night, uh, and each one of them is all, they're always different, but they always are Homer, and uh, I haven't yet said really what we do. I edit down these very long poems. Each one of these epic poems is indeed epic. That means it's uh, big in content and big in size. And like 12,000 lines for the Odyssey and like 16,000. 16,000. 16. Six, oh, wow. Okay. And, and so it's, uh, wow. uh, it's a big job for me to edit it down to a size that a modern audience can enjoy. Uh, in ancient times, these poems were their newspapers, television, uh, gossip, <laughs> genealogies, uh, histories, geographies, you name it. This was what they had, and they were very huge public events, and they were sung by rhapsodes. I'll maybe refer to that a little bit later. But in any case, the editing part of this is my biggest job. Yeah. And what I have to do is try and hang on to the plot, so, as it were, uh, reveal the characters, mm -hmm. and yet not sacrifice the most beautiful parts of the poetry, because they are very beautiful, or they would not have survived. Uh, beautiful in different ways. Each poem, I could talk about that at length, but I'd, I have to try and eliminate the least interesting and hang on to the most interesting, and um, th that's hard. It, that's hard, but I have to get it down to uh, about 12 hours maximum, seven hours minimum, because a modern audience won't tolerate. I mean, this is already pushing an audience. They feel like they've had a big challenge if they stay up 12 hours doing something. Let me just add, one of my colleagues, some, a member of my board, because I have a 501c3, he said the, the wonderful thing about this is that we don't bring to it a the one-hour expectation attention span that we do to a lecture or the two-hour attention span that we bring to a movie or the three-hour attention span that we bring to an opera. This is unlike anything else because it's like a 12 or 8 to 12, depending, uh, our attention span. And that challenges uh, an audience tremendously, and they like it. They rise to that uh, challenge and feel like, you know, Yay! <laughs> I've done something here. That's nice. What is what is a typical reader that comes to take participate? How long does a given person usually have? Uh, oh, at that's the mic? interesting. Um, there is no typical reader. I may ha make 
everything I can possibly do to get a very democratic, participatory audience. Very Greek of you, by the way. Well, it is. It is. Yeah, it is. And I, I, uh, you know, I love to have children. We've had children as young as six. Um, if they can read, they can stand on a chair and do this. And we had, a, just to throw this in, in Montevideo, we had a young boy, a six-year-old, who came on a bus uh, with his uncle all the way from Brazil to just to read. And we have a lot of children. Okay, I love adolescents because they're such a kick and they're so fun. And they love the energy in these poems. Then I have old people, blind people, um, scholars, poets, translators, plumbers. Uh, street people. I had some wonderful street people in New York. <laughs> Hilarious. And and they loved it. I've got to tell you, these are people who don't even hardly know if they like poetry or not. They think they probably don't. Uh, you know, most people in our culture think they probably don't like poetry. And uh, here they are responsible in front of a bunch of strangers for reading what many people consider the greatest uh, poet ever. And... and um, they don't even know about it, but during that experience, they learn something about themselves, about the poetry, about Homer, about collective reading, um, the whole the whole deal. And uh, that pe people have loved that. I can almost say that that's why this is successful. Uh, so there's no typical reader. It's certainly not a scholar, certainly not a poet or a intellectual necessarily, not at all. Can be, can be. We're speaking with Dr. Catherine Holbein about the upcoming event, Reading of the Odyssey, to take place at Fairytale Town as a bit of a summer solstice, I guess, event this June 22nd. Um, Catherine, you, you instituted a couple rules for these events. I thought they're interesting. One may not apologize, and one may not comment. And why did you put those rules in place? Well, because, uh, again, a lot of the people who are reading these things don't know the poems well. And uh, even though they get the passages in advance, this is essential. They get them in advance so that it runs smoothly. Right. That's absolutely critical. And um, but still, there are words and there are there are place names and so forth that are uh, unfamiliar. And it one has a tendency to say, uh, "Oh, I don't know how to pronounce this." And I say, "No, just mispronounce it. Yeah, right. Go ahead, mispronounce. Just keep going." And the other one is that I don't want people. Um, uh, interrupting the poem to say, oh, I just love to be Helen or something like that. Or, you know, you can't do that. And uh, actually, um, they, people throughout around the world, they've taken it very seriously. Well, we've had only, I think, one or two people who, st who did comment. Uh, one man just now in Brussels, where we were doing it, uh, said, oh, I, I need to tell you, I was born in Izmir, Smyrna, and uh, uh, that's where they claim to say that Homer was born. And you, you probably don't know that, he said. So he rattled on about uh, an extraneous thing, and we had to actually stop him. We had to, we had, so that's why. <laughs> that's the answer. By the way, Troy is in, in modern-day Turkey. Are, the, the Trojans, of course, were Greek people, not, not Turkish. But are the Turks embracing Homer? I guess so, if they're trying to claim his, uh, he was born in Izmir. Well, he's got, there are seven different cities that claim his birth, <laughs> and uh, we have done several readings on the island of Chios uh, in the northern Aegean, 
And there is a wonderful place. I was thrilled to death to do it here. A place, a place called Daskalopetra, which is uh, means the, the rock of the teacher. And on top of this enormous, almost mountain, enormous um hunk of rock, there is um, a carved chair where they say Homer s sat and taught his, um, his students uh, to how to, quote, sing these poems. And so just if I can digress for a second, yeah. uh, when they say uh, the, the rhapsodes sang and the bards sang, we have now progressed to the point where we do a lot of singing. And I encourage anyone, anyone who wants to sing, and I'm going to have some this evening, okay. this Friday, um, who wants to actually improvise on singing the passage that we give, to just go ahead and ham it up if you want to, but sing it. And we have had opera singers, we've had magnificent, stunning improvisations on the few lines that these people get in, in song, because, as I say, the rhapsodes of ancient times did sing them. So if we if we if we'd come if we'd come across Homer or uh, in Chios back sitting in his chair yeah. 8th century <laughs> BC he would have he wouldn't been he wouldn't be uh, reciting poetry as we think of it he would be actually projecting it and in essence singing singing the great epics. I have to correct you it was not 8th century BC it was 800 BC when he was okay. uh, thought thought to perhaps have composed them. Nobody really knows. Did he write them? Did he sing them? Did he? Did his grandson write them down? Did uh, did he learn? Was he maybe just on the edge of literacy? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's hard to know, but he had this enormous, he's blind, they say, yeah. and enormous um, imagination and memory retention, of course. And uh, I always told my students, and I do love the idea that... Uh, the notion of being blind seer, a blind seer, is interesting because it means that you are blind biologically, physiologically, but uh, have inward sight. And that's, of course, insight. And that's, of course, true. Well, I, I gather this, again, the debates go on and on about it, trying to uncover how it was done and things. Uh, people have speculated, I know, that, that he, he couldn't have been blind from birth just because his imagery is so vivid. Uh, yes, indeed it is. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's amazing. It's as amazing as Beethoven's being able to hear his music <laughs> when he was deaf. It's just as amazing. Well, in preparation for this chat, Catherine, we, you and I spoke a bit about, about some of this, and I was intrigued by the fact that you noted that uh, translations of this, this ancient work, they vary quite wildly in their quality, but uh, you note that we have some fine versions in modern English, which is what you want, the, the language of today. I do want the language of today, and I won't do I won't do a reading in any um, in any country where there's not a well respected, um, somewhat contemporary uh, translation. Uh, and I have to challenge the the opening statement that you made about um, it, uh, Homer being somehow neglected, because particularly in English. Uh, there's practically a new translation every five years. And there's a brand new one out by Stephen Mitchell, uh, a noted poet in this country. Uh, there's a brand new one in England, which I'm going to have to try and edit to get into the ink. We're doing a reading in London uh, in two weeks. And let me just tell, throw this in. When I was in Brussels, a woman from Barcelona gave me, from the translator 
poet professor who'd done it, a, a new version in Catalan. In Catalan. Mm-hmm. And also, just yesterday on my email, I got a, a message from a classicist who said, did you know that there's a new translation in Gaelic? <laughs> I Well... <laughs> So, I mean, because of that proliferation and that, you know, much translated aspect of of Homer, uh, I can do this all over the world. I mean, it's hardly a country that doesn't have a translation. But some of them are 19th century, Uh and some of them I don't want to do because they just sound too Victorian and weird, and especially to people who think they hate poetry. (laughs) I know you thought the French maybe weren't so lucky in some of their translations. I am not impressed with the French (laughs) translations. I'm not. But I mean, I am. I am with uh, so many countries. And I guess an author, if he wants to do a really, a, a, a really genuinely, not accurate, but I guess something that's true to the spirit, he has to be a bit of an artist himself to add certain flares and things to the language of, of, of modern English. Well, it, it, this opens an enormous topic because you know, do you go for linguistic? Accuracy, is that the essential thing? Uh, do you go for the right rhythm? Is that the essential thing? Or do you go for the, what I call the, you know, the Homeric imagination? Uh, and I, I try to stress, I'm not really a classicist. I'm more of a poet, I, I suppose, and a teacher. And I, uh, what, what I love and what I have found my students love and, and also these participants is, is is the beauty of the poems. So I think a translator today really goes after the, to be as accurate as possible and to maintain the power and beauty of it. Hard. <laughs> and everyone does it differently. So, But I mean, I have this quirk in my being, which makes me feel I have to honor translators because they work so hard and get so little money or credit. And so this is a great way of honoring, but it keeps me editing new things and wearing me out. (laughs) Catherine, I'm having a great time for a guy who spent his whole college career avoiding English classes, but we have to pause here. So let's just continue this talk on next week's show, if that's okay with you. That would be great. All right. That about does it for time. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. I'm Douglas Everett. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. We will continue our talk with Catherine Holvine on next week's show. We'll see you then.